Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. As you know, we're working through a series called The Heart of Christ using a book by Dane Ortland called Gentle and Lowly. And so each week we've been diving into what the Bible has to say about the heart of Jesus. And this morning we're going to look at that he is rich uh, in mercy. So if you're willing and able, why don't you stand? And we're going to read from Ephesians uh, chapter 2. Paul writes this to the church at Ephesus. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ by grace You have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is the reading of God's word. It is, uh, every part of it is true, and he gives it to us because he loves us. You may be seated. Let me show you a picture of uh, Mount Whitney in California. Mount Whitney uh, is a towering uh, peak. And when you're on the top of Mount Whitney, you can see on a clear day for hundreds and hundreds of miles. And it's a beautiful panoramic view, vista after vista like this one. But you can also see something else about 80 miles to the southeast. You can actually see Death Valley. What a staggering contrast. The top of Mount Whitney is cool and refreshing and beautiful. And it's like you can really almost see all of life. And Death Valley is dry and lifeless and hot. In fact, there's a number of warning signs when you enter into Death Valley like this one. Extreme heat danger. There's a warning sign for flash floods. 
There's a warning sign not to leave your air conditioning in your car on too long. There's a warning sign for bad water. There's a warning sign for, uh, there's one sign that says this, don't become a Death Valley victim. There's also a place called Furnace Creek. (laughs) Death Valley. Well, it's a California thing. People in California love to do this. You can actually go from Death Valley all the way to Mount Whitney in one day. You can go to Death Valley, you can walk around a little bit, then jump in your car and drive two hours to a 7,000 foot parking lot, and then you can climb to the top of Mount Whitney, take in the beautiful view, and get back down to your car before dark. It's a California thing. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, he takes us to the death valley of the soul, and then he takes us to the pinnacle to be seated with Christ. But Paul tells us something in this passage. He says that this journey that I'm taking you on, it is actually powered by something. It's powered by the heart of Christ. Kevin DeYoung says this, He says the heart of the gospel pumps bright red in the first two words of verse four. In one through three, we see that mankind was dead, disobedient, demonic, destined for destruction. We were prodigals, scoundrels, vile, impure, unholy, treacherous, self-absorbed, self-exalting, out and out rebels. That's the bad news. We were not strugglers in need of a helping hand or sinking swimmers in need of a raft. We were stone cold dead, spiritually lifeless, without a religious pulse, without anything to please God. But he loves the loveless. He gives life to the lifeless and is merciful to those deserving no mercy. So are you ready? It's not just a California thing. It's a gospel thing. To take us from death to life. And we have to experience this journey not simply at our conversion, but we have to see it and understand to get the panoramic view of the gospel. So take a sermon outline and let's look at this passage together. First, we see the need. Paul says that we are dead in sin. You know, Jesus was not sent to us to mend wounded people, to wake up sleepy people, to inspire confused people, or to uh, inspire boring people, but to raise dead people. Paul says we're dead in our sin, we're dead to God. In fact, in Romans 3, Paul says that no one understands no one seeks God, that, that our, our throats are like an open grave. Jeremy, uh, Jeremy Bentham was the father of utilitarianism. He died in 1832. And when he died, he gave orders that his entire estate would be given to the University College Hospital in London on the condition that his body 
would be embalmed and preserved and dressed in his clothing and be seated at every board meeting that the college hospital in London held. And here is a picture. His head actually is made of wax because they couldn't preserve that very well. And he sits there, and this has been carried on for 190 years. Pretty dark humor. (laughs) And every time the board chairman starts the meeting out like this, Jeremy Bentham, present, but not voting. And he never makes a motion, and he never votes, because he is dead. And Paul says we are dead spiritually. That we are sons of disobedience. That we're actually following the devil, following the ways of the world. That the power of hell, following Satan, is not something we we just yield to. It's something that is at work inside of us. Now, the Greek word here, to follow, means to be mastered, to be enslaved, that we are not able to not sin, that we are not able to not rebel outside of Christ. There's actually a a trend uh, started in California years ago where you can get a really fancy hotel room. And uh, I mean, they're just, they're just beautiful. But you pay a lot of money, you pay $2,800 a night, and there's no television, there's no Wi-Fi, and your cell phone will not have a signal. People are paying thousands of dollars because they need to be rescued from the addiction to their devices. They're so enslaved to them. We inhale the rejection of God. We exhale to self-destruction and well-deserved judgment. Paul says that we are by nature children of wrath. It's not that we don't deserve heaven. We don't deserve heaven. No, we do deserve hell. Outside of Christ, we are Hell's children. You know, sometimes, uh, and rightfully so, Christians get comfort from reading Paul's words in Romans 8, where Paul says, If God is for you, well, then who could be against you? If you got God on your side, you're unstoppable. But what if the reverse were true? If God is not for you, if God is against you, we don't just slip into the passions of our flesh. We live in these passions. You know, if you have uh, small children, or you remember when your kids were little, there's moments when you're raising them where you go, I cannot, you, you just can't believe how naughty they are how manipulative they are, and and how deceiving they can be. And you look at your kids, you're like, what got into you? 
It's like the story of the little girl who is kicking her brother in the shin and pulling his hair. And the mom comes in to find this. And she's so aghast by her daughter's behavior. She says to her, why are you listening to the devil and doing such harm to your little brother? And she says, well, mom, it, it is true that the devil made me kick my brother. But pulling his hair, that was my idea. You know, beneath, uh, beneath the smiles at the grocery store and the friendly wave to our neighbors, we are quietly enthroning ourselves at every turn. In our sin, we want to dethrone God and put ourselves on the throne. You know, sometimes as a pastor, um, I'm meeting with people who have just morally uh, crossed some serious lines. And um, they're in my office, and we're talking through it, and they're confessing this, and they're just shaking their head, and they're saying something usually along the lines like this, you know, Pastor, I just I can't believe I did this. I mean, I, I, I can't believe I've done this. And then they'll usually say something like this, Pastor, you just don't understand. I, this is not who I am. I mean, I'm not like this. And very gently, I'll say to them, no, this is exactly who you are. In fact, you're a lot worse than you think you are. Martin Luther said that we are curved in on ourselves. Donald Miller wrote this. He said, the most difficult lie, the most difficult lie I have to contend with in my life is this, that life is a story about me. In 2013, we got a new word in our vocabulary, selfie. 30% of all photographs taken by those eight by, in their teen years and 20s are pictures of themselves. And we're not very bothered by that as a culture. But you know what does bother us? Other people's selfishness. <laughs> Oh, we see that. That is crystal clear. You know, like when someone cuts in line in front of you in the store and, uh, and uh, they're very rude about it and your feathers start get, you start to feel ruffled and you start to feel this irritation inside of you and disgust inside of you. What is that that's happening? It's a collision a collision between their selfishness and your selfishness because they cut in line in front of who? The supreme being yourself. That's why you're upset. John Stott says this. He says, sin is fundamentally the exaltation of self at the expense of God. What someone wrote of the Englishman is true for every man. He is a self-made man who worships his creator. We not only live in sin, we enjoy living in sin. We want there to live there. It's our coddled treasure, our golem's delight. It's our precious outside of Christ. Now, 
Some people might be thinking to themselves, well, pastor, I'm sorry, but that doesn't really describe me. I was brought up in a very law-abiding home. We were a good family. We had good morals. I was never arrested. You know, uh, in fact, I've always been really good to people. I'm a very generous person. So I, I don't know that this really is describing me. But Paul writes here, he says this, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh. You have to remember, Paul, he was a lawkeeper. He describes himself this way, I was the Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, the persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul says, I was blameless, not even so much as a parking ticket. But then he describes his life before Christ in this way, foolish, disobedient, led astray, enslaved to various passions and pleasures. Now, how, how do you make sense of that? Well, because there are two ways that we can vent our fleshly passions. One is by breaking all the rules, just doing whatever we want. And two, by keeping all the rules. Dead works. We are so self-centered that what we do can be full of selfish, we can do good and moral things for selfish reasons. And we can do them to boast in ourselves, to feel good about ourselves. Our good deeds can often be self-directed. If we help the gospel, we lose the gospel. We can be immoral dead people or moral dead people. You can keep the rules and avoid the gospel. You can avoid sin and look shiny and new on the outside, but you can be avoiding Jesus. And this is most difficult to see in yourself. Here's what Dane Orland says about it in his book. There is an entire psychological substructure that, due to the fall, is a near constant manufacturing of relational leveraging, fear stuffing, nervousness, scorekeeping, neurotic controlling, anxiety festering silliness. That is not something so much we say or even think as something we exhale. You can smell it on people, though some of us are good at hiding it. Lawishness of worksness is by its very nature undetectable because it's natural. It's not unnatural to us. Feels normal. Of works to fallen people is what water is to fish. I've been reading this, uh, this book. It's a biography of a pastor by the name of Jack Miller. And in the book, he tells a story of a time when he was trying to, um, you know, as a pastor, he's trying to work on his own marriage. So he came to his wife one day and he said, honey, if there was one thing you could change about me, what would it be? And she said, Jack, you don't listen to me. Oh, you listen and you love all the people at the church, but you don't listen to me. He 
says, okay. And he took it to heart. You know, he's humbled by it. And so he started to work really hard at it. He wanted to fix the problem. And about eight months went by and he felt like he was doing pretty good. Every time she was talking at home, he'd sit down and look at her and listen to her. And, uh, you know, he started thinking, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm doing pretty good here. He kind of boasted to himself. He said, I think I'm ready for the next challenge. So he goes back to his wife and he says, honey, if there was one thing you could change about me, what would it be? And she said, Jack, you don't listen. <laughs> and he's kind of frustrated. Then he realized, and this is what he said, he said, underneath my effort, I was driven by self-righteous performance. The motor of my dead works was much deeper than I even knew. Paul Tripp says this. He says, if your ministry is not rooted in the finished work of Christ, then you will look to your ministry to save you. My favorite part. Pastors are weird. They are creepy, and some of them are freaks because they are trying so hard to validate themselves with performance, trying hard to squeeze life out of success in ministry. Your biggest weakness is your delusion of strength. Now, that's just, honestly, it's just not true of pastors. It's true of all believers. I have three kids. My, my kids are all grown now and they're adults. And, but when my kids were little, I was determined I was going to be the best Christian parent ever. I was going to be like a gold medal parent, you know? Now, what does a good parent want to do? Well, a good parent wants to protect their kids, you know? Protect their kids from maybe bad influence or, or bad teachers or bad coaches or, or anything that could go wrong. Because as a good parent, you protect your kids because you, you don't want anybody to harm them, to wound them, to break their heart. But then it dawned on me, who actually has the greatest potential to harm children? Their own parents. Think about your story. If you were wounded by your parents, doesn't it shape your life more than anything else? And all of a sudden I realized maybe it's not going to be the coaches and the teachers and the internet and any kind of outside influences. And then I just was like, oh my goodness, who's going to protect my children from me? From my self-righteousness? You know, pastors can harm their kids because they're so good at being good. And we just know everything. I realized I needed the school. I needed the church. I needed the youth pastor. I needed the gospel to protect my kids from myself, from my superior view of myself. Can I tell you something? It's really, really a good thing to realize you're in Death Valley because of your sin or because of your dead works. Because then you'll be able to really taste something. Second, his mercy is rich. How do we get out of Death Valley of the soul? Two words, the most significant two words in the Bible. 
the most important two words in your life. But God. But God being rich in mercy. It does not say he is becoming rich in mercy. This statement takes us to the inner recesses of the Creator, into the Holy of Holies. It takes us, it takes us backstage behind the curtain into the animating center of who God is. That mercy is natural to him. It is not something he just does. It is at the heart of his being. David, at one point, is asking God to show him mercy. And he says, God, show me your mercy according to your own heart. You see, God is like a billionaire when it comes to mercy. And the withdrawals that we make when we fail and we sin, what do they do to the account of God's mercy? They actually increase it. They don't lessen it. How can that be? Because mercy is something he is. If mercy was something he simply had, it would be a limit to how much he could dole out. But the pouring out of his mercy... It is in accordance with who he is. Told you about this pastor, this book, Jack Miller, I'm reading. During the 70s and the 80s, uh, his church and and he and his wife practiced pretty radical uh, hospitality. And uh, one of the first young women that they welcomed into their home was a woman by the name of Gwen. And Gwen was deeply involved in the occult, and drugs and motorcycle gangs when she arrived at their home in 1974. But even while she was in their home, there was this darkness that was growing inside of her, even as she received the care of the Millers, their hospitality, their friendship. She was actually planning to murder them. And as the gospel began to have its way with her, she began to get really convicted, and one day in the house, she blurts out to Jack, I've been planning to kill you and Mrs. Miller. (laughs) Jack was pretty shocked. But after he kind of got his legs, first words out of his mouth were this, Gwen, before anything else happens, I want you to know I forgive you. I forgive you for planning to murder us. She was stunned into silence. She began to weep. And she said, you are the only people who've ever loved me. And I was wanting to kill you. I am so sick. She's stunned by her sin. She's shocked by mercy. Are you? Am I? Then in verses 6 and 7, the mercy keeps coming to us. Because Paul says the richness of his mercy is going to take us to the pinnacle of his wealth. That he raises us up in Christ. He seats us with Christ in the heavenly realms so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. 
So in Christ, God calls you forward and says, come here, take a seat. No, 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 not that seat, not that seat. I'm going to seat you here with Christ in the heavens. I'm going to seat you now. Positionally, the believer is seated right now with Christ. In order that God can take us to the pinnacle of his rich mercy and just show us vista after vista after vista of his beautiful kindness towards us. You know, very often in our sin and our failure, we kind of think God is looking at us and going, you know, I'm just fed up with you. I'm sick and tired of this repeated failure. I mean, really, again? I mean, can you never hold your tongue? Are you constantly filled with rage and anger? I mean, look at this, this failure in your life. In fact, you know what? You disgust me. Get out of my sight. That's what we think sometimes. But his mercy is relentless. It's invincible. It's never-ending. In fact, hear me now on this. For God to bring an end to his mercy towards us, for him to stop the flow of mercy towards us, Jesus right now would have to be sucked out of heaven and put back into the tomb. Such is our security. Simon uh, Kistemacher was a professor of mine in uh, seminary. And Dr. Kistermacher was, you know, he was Dutch. And he, he was just really a brilliant man. Um, you know, he spoke a lot of languages. In class, he would, he would read from the Greek New Testament and just translate it as he was going. You know, and it, you felt like he was just reading the NIV to you or something. And one time in class, a student asked Dr. Kistermacher, Dr. Kistermacher, what is the hardest verse in the Bible to understand? And Dr. Kistemacher just stood there silently. And then he sat down. And then his eyes got all moist. And he said, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He was stunned by mercy. Oh, that God would make it so in our own hearts. Finally, third, mercy, the evidence, the evidence. So Paul says that God is going to show his immeasurable riches to us. He's going to show us his rich mercy in the now and the not yet. So that means there's going to be evidence of mercy in your life that it's going to be written on every page of your story. But some of y'all might say, oh, wait a second. <laughs> Do you know my life? If my life is any evidence of God's mercy, well, then I'm not impressed. Finding his mercy towards us does not begin by looking at your life. The evidence of his mercy is found first by looking at his life 
mistreated, misunderstood, betrayed, abandoned in our place. If God sent his own son to walk through the valley of condemnation, afflictions, and hell, then we can trust him as we walk through our own afflictions and our own sorrows on our way to heaven. I love what John Piper says. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life. And you, you're aware of three of them. So seeing the evidence of his mercy in our life always comes by seeing all of our lives in him. Love what Jeremiah Burroughs says this. He says, the consideration of the abundance of mercies that God bestows and we enjoy. It is a saying of Luther that the sea of God's mercies should swallow up all of our particular afflictions. Name any affliction that is upon you. There is a sea of mercy to swallow it up. If you pour a pailful of water on the floor of your house, it makes a great show. But if you throw it into the sea, there is no sign of it. So, afflictions considered in themselves, we think are very great. But let them be considered with the sea of God's mercies that we enjoy. And then, they are not much at all. They are nothing in comparison. So where do we start? How do we begin to experience his mercy? Well, Death Valley, of course. We are always beginning again in the gospel. The Ephesians are already Christians. And yet Paul takes them on this death to life journey in the gospel. Our justification in Christ is always giving power to our sanctification. And in Death Valley, sin has a killing power. It kills joy. It kills hope. It kills relationships. And it's an ongoing reality for us on this earth. And so we have to experience the gospel, the power of it, his mercy. I want to show you a, uh, a video clip from the movie Gladiator. And I want you to listen to the crowd and watch the emperor. What's the crowd cheering? Kill, kill, kill. That's what the world screams right now. 
You wrong me. You cross my path. Kill. Kill. I'll cancel you out of my life. You're at a restaurant and the waitress, she totally messes up the order. and Your food comes out cold and you smile on the outside. But on the inside, kill, kill, kill. Jealousy, envy, strife, grudges in your own family. Kill, kill, kill. You're angry. You're Fox News angry at politics. Can you believe it? Kill, kill, kill. And then there's you. You fail. You, you sin. You, 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 you look at pornography again. You yell at your kids. You're so disgusted with your neighbor. You're insecure. You're fragile. You're often filled with, with self-loathing and, and, and shame and feeling worthless. And inside, the voice is saying to you, kill. Kill, kill. An old pastor said this. He said, nothing makes us more angry and critical at other people than the shame that we feel in ourselves. The self-killing voice. You know, the hymn says this. The hymn says, ashamed I hear my mocking voice. I hear my killing voice call out among the scoffers. So what does it take to really experience mercy? Well, at the very moment in your life that you're yelling kill, 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 you got to see your own face in the crowd. And you got to hear from him mercy, mercy, mercy mercy. You have to see the heavenly father holding out his thumb in the direction of the cross as his only beloved son hangs there and the crowd is chanting kill, kill, kill. And you have to watch the father in great anguish turn his thumb down on his son. Kill. No mercy. And then out of the depths of your heart, you begin to sing how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. You know, our sins, they are many. But his mercy is more. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there is nothing more liberating than the gospel journey. For my afflictions, for my dead works, for my sin, for my church family. Jesus, would you help us to sing of your mercy, to sing of your rich mercy like a child who is so loved they can skip right through Death Valley on their way to the pinnacle of your mercy. 
Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org. Thank you.